At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. This is The Exchange, and here's what's ahead this hour. Has Jay Powell been right all along? As commodities begin to collapse, is inflation really transitory? We'll dive in and ask. Plus, something very strange is happening in the mortgage market, and it could have to do with the taper. Will higher rates hurt home prices? We'll ask. And as inflation trades wobble, Bitcoin takes a breather. Has a key reason to own it just disappeared? But we begin with today's price action in the markets. And Dom Chu is here with the afternoon numbers, Dom. All right, it could be worse, but it's still about a one and a quarter percent decline for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. We're off the worst lows of the session, but we're not that far off. About 500 points plus was kind of where we were at the lows, but still you can see about one and one third percent declines there. The S&P 500 now below 4,200 just about 1% declines there in the NASDAQ composite, outperforming, if you will, only down about six-tenths of 1%, the level there, 14073 Interest rates, as you mentioned, Kelly, a key part of this narrative. You are seeing 10-year yields, the longer U.S. Treasury side of things, drift down to about the 1.46 level. But more than any absolute level for any part of the yield curve or maturity, it's about the difference between short and long-term rates. That gap is narrowing. It doesn't matter what measure you're looking at, 5.30s, 2.10s. We're going to show you 2.10s right now. But as you can see here, that steep drop lower that you're looking at here now puts you at the lowest levels going all the way back to February of this year. That's going to have a profound implication on many parts of the market, namely the banks and the financials. So certainly a key trade. We highlighted it yesterday. Keep an eye on those banks. And then if you're looking for what else in the market is going down, well, Cryptocurrencies seem to be correlated with the downtrend in many parts of the market right now. We're going to look at Bitcoin prices currently off about 3% below the 37,000 mark. Ether now below 2,300 off 4.5%. Litecoin, Dogecoin, we'll put those up there as well. So again, the cryptocurrency entire sphere is pretty much drifting lower. And I know that, Kelly, you'll be talking later on in this show about just how much the mining aspect of that whole kind of cryptocurrency industry is going to evolve in the coming weeks and months as well. So I'm looking forward to that story. And we'll be talking about Bitcoin outperforming gold, even with this dip. Don, thank you so much. Now, as the market digests those comments from James Bullard today about rate hikes potentially coming next year, at least in his view, are investors worried that the Fed is risking a policy mistake by all this tapering and tightening talk? Bob Bassani is here with more. Bob? You know, uh, it's been a very rough week for the reflation and reopening trade. And you can see that in what's been going on with the commodity stocks, because the commodities have been proxies for the whole reopening trade. Demand for commodities go up. Man, for the commodity stocks, of course, profits there increase rather dramatically. Just take a look at what some of the biggest commodity companies in the world are doing this week. Now, Antofagasta trades over in London, but they're one of the biggest copper producers in the world, down almost 30% this week. This is this week. Freeport McMoran, their competitor out there, one of the big copper producers, down 25%. U.S. Steel, one of the biggest steel producers in the world, down over 20%. Mosaic is a huge fertilizer company, down 20%. You go down a little further, Cleveland Cliffs, big uh, iron ore producer 
Furniture, uh, also down 17, 18%. Vulcan Materials, they make stone and concrete in the United States, also down. Nucor, big competitor, again, the steel business. Uh, Rio Tinto, one of the biggest miners uh, in the world, all in a single week here. Now, there's a kind of a double whammy going on here that's pushing these commodity stocks down. The first, of course, is we had this big run-up. Everybody, global demand increased uh, for the commodities going into May. But this week, the Fed announced, essentially implied they're going to slow the economy down a little in 2022. And that was a trigger for a lot of people to say, ah, this is as good as it's going to get. We had a second issue, though, earlier in the week before the Fed. China announced a crackdown on speculators. They said they were going to increase the supply of commodities in order to get commodity prices down. We've got a government that's out there, the biggest commodity producer in the world, that's actively trying to push down prices. You put these two together, you got a double whammy. Let, let me show you the copper prices here. We've been watching that. Uh, they hit a high, a historic high copper back in May. You see that big move up? And now look at that move down here. But Tuesday, China announced. Wednesday, you had the Federal Reserve meeting. Very tough situation right now. So what we're hap- what's happening here is we're transitioning essentially from the reopening story, the early cycle recovery. Now we're in a more mature phase. That's what the Fed is implied right now, that the economy is still growing. It's fine, but it's getting the, the reopening is getting a little bit more mature, what we call mid-cycle. We'll talk what that means for investors in the next hour. Guys, back to you. Absolutely. Well said, Bob. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon, our Bob Bassani. And stocks are slumping today after those hawkish comments from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard. He was on Squawk Box. And remember, he's personally forecasting rate hikes as early as next year. Listen. We were expecting a good year, uh, a good reopening, but this is a a bigger year than we were expecting, Um, more inflation than we were expecting. And I think it's natural that we've uh, tilted a little bit more hawkish here uh, to contain inflationary pressures. You know, keep in mind, he's not a voting member, but those comments still carry a lot of weight. Joining us now, Sandy Villery is co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balanced Fund. And Emily Rubin is a financial advisor at UBS Global Wealth Management. Welcome to both of you. Emily, I'll, I'll go with you first. What are you advising clients to do with stocks now? Well, all of our clients are are very concerned about inflation, taxes, and the markets being at highs. So, you know, we have to think about both the short term and the long term. In the short term, we actually do think that there's some more room to run on the reopening trade, though perhaps outside of the U.S. for some of the markets that are a little behind on the vaccination front. Uh, We saw over the last uh, six weeks, Europe outperformed the U.S. by four percentage points as they got their vaccination program in line. And we think the next trade there is likely in Asia, particularly Japan, which is about six weeks behind Europe. But we also want to focus our clients on the long term. Uh, and we see, uh, you know, some different areas to focus on when we're looking at the decade ahead, which we think is going to be a little bit more difficult for the traditional asset classes, given that we're coming into a world that's more indebted, more unequal, less global, and potentially with higher uh, inflation and taxes. So it's going to be a little more difficult uh, tactically uh, when we're looking at the The, the decade. The debt issue is going to be so interesting. You know, I just saw a story today, Emily, that said they're trying to figure out how to get people with high student loan debt an easier uh, sort of process to buy housing. You know, so there's so many different arguments. There's the argument that the debt will hold back spending uh, there's the argument that, you know, once you service the debt, you're going to unleash spending. And, and now there's this whole different dynamic, which is to say that those high debt levels have no bearing on the level of spending because it just might be sort of like the the debt to GDP levels that Japan or the U.S. has been dealing with. It just seems to get piled on with very little sort of consequence on uh, on what you can do day, day to day. 
Sandy, I don't know if that makes any sense, but that's kind of how I feel about the markets right now. You know, they just leave me scratching my head. You could make an argument for owning stocks because we're in deflation, argument for owning stocks in case we're in inflation, an argument. I mean, so I know you guys have some specific stock picks and maybe is that the best advice in an environment like this? Yeah, what we tell our clients is to try to, you know, just try to sift out the noise. And and this is this is a confusing period. We're going from this incredible, um, you know, dovish party, if you will, to uh, becoming more hawkish. And then certainly today, with comments from Bullard, um, wow, things are uh, uh, coming sooner than we think, um, even even uh, compared to Wednesday. But we want to take this opportunity to look at, you know, names that have been beaten up, sift through the rubble, and maybe find some things, especially as uh, as as market sells off in in terms of commodities and cyclicals in this reopening trade. Maybe there's some great opportunities. Um, a few that we like, Caesars Entertainment. Um, we think they're doing really, really well fundamentally. And so we would like to buy on these dips and, uh, and and hopefully make money over the long run for our clients. And you also like Palomar Holdings, which is a PNC insurance company, First Hawaiian. Uh, Emily, let me turn back to you as, as we sort of think through this. And I, I want to ask about one of your assumptions or observations about what your clients are looking for, which is the inflation trades. I mean, do you still recommend those trades or do you watch things falling apart this week and say, you know, that's kind of the wrong way to be thinking about this market, certainly beyond the next six or 12 months time? Well, I mean, we think that the short term inflation is going to continue. I mean, all this pent up demand is meeting constrained supply due to supply chain disruptions and labor market friction. But we agree that it's going to be transitory or at least largely transitory. Uh, we think that supply chain disruptions will resolve themselves over the next several months and the labor market will ease up as uh, enhanced unemployment restrictions expire, the kids get back to school so the parents can get back to work and you know, older Americans get more comfortable going into the workforce. But we are, while we, while we think that a lot of the inflation is transitory, we do think that some of the price increases may be a little bit more sticky. Uh, things like used cars are likely to go down, but there are other areas of the market, whether it be rent, service areas, uh, that we think the prices will increase to offset that. So we may have to look at this as a period where we've gone through a period of very low inflation for a very long time. And maybe there's a bit of a catch up in prices right now. So while we think some of the price increases may be sticky, we do think that the rate of those increases will yeah. moderate significantly. Yeah, no, exactly. So, Sandy, let me ask you about First Hawaiian as a case study here. It's a Hawaiian bank you like for a number of reasons, you know, recovery and tourism and all of that. But also on the expectation that higher rates help its net interest margins. So do you have to change your thinking in that regard, given what's happened to rates this week? Or do you think this is just a pause before we are sort of on the resumed trajectory towards, let's call it 2% in the 10-year? Yeah, I, I think this is just a pause. And so this is a great opportunity to buy a, a bank that's been around since 1858 um, at, at a more reasonable price because of what's going on in the, in the broad market and, and certainly inflation fears, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's also a, a, re, uh, a reopening play uh, as tourists come back to Hawaii and um, they've, they, you know, it's a type of bank that never took TARP, you know, back in the financial crisis. So they're just a stable, a stable bank, a good place to catch a nice dividend yield that's going to be much higher than the 10 year treasury and a place that we would certainly park money today. All right. Thank you both today for dissecting some of these market moves post-Fed. Emily Rubin and Sandy Villary joining me. We really appreciate it. Let's get to our news alert on Boeing, the manufacturer's biggest 737 MAX yet, taking off moments ago for its first flight. And Phil Lebeau is here with details on this key aircraft. Phil? Kelly, let's take a look at pictures from Renton, Washington. Now, this is the 737 
uh, plant. That's where they build all of the Maxes. And just a few minutes ago, the Max 10, which is the largest version of the 737 Max family, taking off clear skies. This flight is expected to last a couple of hours. This is a plane that can carry up to 230 passengers. And again, it will be the largest of all the Maxes that Boeing plans to build. There are four versions. The Max 8 and Max 9 are already in service. The Max 7, the smallest, has yet to be built. And there you see after it takes off. As you look at this plane, keep in mind that deliveries of the Max 10 will not start until 2023. But this is an important hurdle for Boeing to overcome as it continues to ramp up production of the 737 MAX. The company has more than 550 MAX 10s that have been ordered, and the backlog, it stands, I believe, at somewhere over 3,000 MAXs altogether. So it's crucial that they continue moving forward, not only with the MAX 10, but after that, then with the MAX 7. I'm going to show you a couple of stocks to keep an eye on. One of them, Boeing. And as I mentioned, it's crucial that they continue to make progress on increasing max production, which they have been doing. So for them, this is a big milestone. And then you've got United Airlines. It is the launch airline for the 737 MAX 10. And again, first deliveries not scheduled until 2023. Kelly, back to you. And that's exactly why, uh, you know, the, sort of the whole market field is watching these test flights with the now the largest of the 737 MAX fleet in the air. We appreciate it. Phil LeBeau following all the twists and turns for us. Coming up, caught in the middle in the deflation versus inflation and gold versus the dollar debate. Where exactly does Bitcoin land? We'll explore that. Plus, an interesting divergence setting up in the mortgage market. What it means for housing affordability is next right here on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EatonVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. 
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Here's a check on markets. A lot of movement today. Obviously, the Dow down more than 1%. It is the biggest decliner. Uh, down 391, though, is off the session lows, as Don was just mentioning a moment ago. The S&P 500 down eight-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq is still outperforming, even on a broadly red day. It's only down a half percent. And let's check on some of the individual movers this hour. It's a tale of two chips for NVIDIA and Micron, with the former hitting an all-time high up 2.5%. It's also the second straight all-time high. Today, after B of A hiked its price target to 900 bucks a share. NVIDIA is up nearly 20% just this month on pace for its best month since August. And by the way, that 900 price target is about $135 above where we are now. Meantime, Micron down about 4% after getting a downgrade to neutral at Cleveland Research. Micron is on pace for its third straight weekly decline and Citigroup is moving lower as well today. In fact, Citigroup is down for the 12th day in a row. That's its longest losing streak since 2018, today dropping 2%. Earlier this week, its CFO also warned that trading revenue for the second quarter could drop 30% from a year ago. Financials as a whole are lower as bond yields have plunged post-Fed. And look at Lennar, up 4% today, on pace for its best week since March after J.P. Morgan upgraded the stock to overweight and raised its price target to 141. That's up from 98 here. That's almost 50% upside. For more on this bullish call that has Lennar up 3.5% today, head on over to cnbc.com pro. Coming up, toy maker stocks are down this week as they grapple with shipping delays and supply shortages overseas. Is Christmas at risk? We'll explore. Plus, not one, not two, but three of these airline stocks are getting an upgrade from the top analysts on Wall Street today. The whole sector's green. Find out who and why when we come back. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, welcome back to the exchange. Dow's down more than 400 points right now, down 1.2%. We're watching the bond market, though. That's where all the action has been lately. The 10-year yield well below 1.5%. Now, the strange thing about this is typically that would mean that mortgage rates are moving lower, but not so. And not just this week. Over the past month, look at this divergence between the 10-year bond yield and the mortgage rate. The mortgage rate is that white line, and it is spiking higher. It got worse after the Fed's meeting, too. Is this a housing version of the taper tantrum? Well, here's St. Louis Fed President James Bullard on the Fed's mortgage holdings this morning. Bullard indicating that they might look at selling some of the mortgage-backed securities as they also look at whether to sell some of the treasuries from their portfolio, or at least to buy fewer of them. Let's talk a little bit more about the dynamics this is creating in the mortgage market. Let's bring in Andy Walden. He's economist and director of market research for Black Knight. Andy, it's great to have you here. Please explain this mystery for us. What is going on in the mortgage market? Yeah, I think what you're seeing is kind of a somewhat of a return to norm. If you look over the last five years or so, I mean, historically, there's been about a 2% spread between mortgage, uh, 30-year mortgage rates and 10-year Treasury yields. With all of the bond buying or mortgage-backed security buying the Fed has been doing, it's really tightened up those spreads. And so the increased spread that we're seeing is, is likely in response to kind of the expectation of a, a somewhat return to, to more of a normal market. 
And can you also tell us what the expectation is right now in the market for this tapering? I mean, what do they think is going to happen on the mortgage piece and on the Treasury piece? Yeah, and I think that's really what the market's trying to understand and, and kind of figure out. We're kind of in a phase where we're talking about talking about it right now, and so I don't think there's a, a set plan in place. And so I think the market's trying to determine and, and make expectations for where that may go, and it's, it's simply an unknown at this point. So if you're saying we're kind of going back to normalcy here in terms of the spread between the 10-year yield and the mortgage rate, I guess the question is, what does that mean for the housing market? If we've enjoyed a period where that spread was lower than normal, so mortgage rates are kind of lower than normal um, with everything going on in the 10-year, does that mean that we should expect to see rates edging higher now, even though the 10-year has slumped this week? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the long-term expectation. And when and where that'll take place and by how much and how quickly, I think, is still up in the air. But I think the broad expectation is for mortgage rates to kind of gradually or maybe even sharply at points rise over the next couple of years. In in terms of what that means for the mortgage market, if we look at affordability even before this recent interest rate move, we were already kind of at a point in the, the housing market where we should start to see some inflection. We should start to see some slowing and deceleration to norm. This obviously pushes us farther up that chain. But the challenge in the housing market is that there's so little inventory that we're continuing to see red-hot prices, even though your, your quantity volumes, your lock volumes, your pending sale volumes are, are falling. Um, and so we're kind of seeing a dynamic where the housing market continues to rise faster than it should, even in a rising rate environment, because there's no inventory out there. Interesting. So basically, if we had you know, all the supply we needed, we might already be seeing uh, prices correct a little bit more than, than they had. This kind of goes back to what we learned uh, today from Redfin, where they were saying that the housing market activity probably peaked around eight or nine weeks ago. Do you think there's some truth in that? Well, I think there's two different things to look at. One is quantities, right? So if you're looking at application volumes or optimal blue rate lock volumes on purchase lending or pending sale volumes, I think those could trend in a different direction than prices, um, simply because we're in in an environment where we have 60% lower inventory than we should have. We continue to see new inflow of inventory run at 25% lower than it should be, and you can only sell what you're listing. So we could see quantities fall, applications fall, pending sales fall, at the same time, home prices continue to rise. That's so fascinating. So, you know, sort of spin this story forward a year or so, Andy, where are we in terms of housing market conditions, do you think? Well, I think that's really the, the question and the concern for the market, right? The question is, what happens to affordability? We know that we're relatively level now. We're kind of at a point where we should be slowing, but it's not overly concerning. Where are we at if home prices continue to rise like they are? And then we start to see some tapering and we see some sharp movement in 30-year rates. I think that really starts to put pressure on the housing market. So I don't think it's a known, but there's certainly a concern there of how that could play out over the next 12 months. And any final question, what is the biggest threat to this housing market? Is it, you know, I mean, broadly speaking, is it that the economy itself, you know, cools a little bit, that we see, um, you know, prices kind of normalized to what's normal in terms of relative to rents and incomes. Is it that, you know, more supply simply comes online? I mean, what would you describe as kind of the key thing that people in the market are looking out for? I think that we run too hot for too long and then sharply see a rise in 30-year rates. If you continue to see the housing market run hot for 12 to 18 months and then you see a taper tantrum effect like we saw in 2013 or even some semblance of in 2018-19, I think that's where some of the the risk comes into the market. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, Andy, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Andy Walden talking through the risks in the mortgage and the housing markets uh, today as we work through what the Fed has done this week. Meantime, a double upgrade on business travel, stranded in Toyland and bullish on hookups. It's all coming up in today's Rapid Fire right after this.
back, everybody. Let's get out to Rahel Solomon, who has our CNBC News update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. And here's what's happening at this hour. President Joe Biden is expected to announce 300 million vaccine shots have been given to Americans since he took office. That amounts to about 65% of all adults getting at least one shot. Only 5% of Americans were fully vaccinated when Biden took office. Still, he's unlikely to hit his goal of at least one shot for 70% of all adults by July 4th. And on the news, an interview with a hospital executive who is facing rising numbers of COVID patients. Also tracking new variants at a wastewater plant. That's tonight, of course, at 7 p.m. Eastern. Overseas in Hong Kong, two pro-democracy newspaper executives have been charged with collusion with a foreign country. Three others were released on bail earlier today. International groups have condemned the arrest as attacks on media freedom. freedom. And a Danish soccer player who collapsed during a European championship game has been released from the hospital. Christian Eriksen had his heart restarted with a defibrillator after play stopped. Eriksen now has a similar heart-starting device implanted in his chest, but scary moments there. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. So, Rahel, was this, when, when did this happen, that his heart stopped on the field? Uh, I believe during play, yeah, exactly. So when play was stopped. Wow, holy cow. Um, it's great to see that he's recovered and doing so well. Agreed. Uh, Rahel Solomon, thank you so much. Let's move on to rapid fire now, shall we? Catch up on a few stories that should be on your radar right now. Joining me to help break down the headlines today, Contessa Brewer, Tim Seymour, the Chief Investment Officer for Seymour Asset Management and Fast Money Trader, and Christina Partsinevelis, welcome one and all. Our first topic today is basically the topic of the whole week. Buckle up, because now deflation, not inflation, is the biggest concern in markets. That, at least, is the argument that Dave Rosenberg is making today, saying he also expects the VIX will go higher. I already see Tim nodding. At the same time, Strategist Michael Darda is also cautious on stocks, especially high multiple ones, but for a different reason, because he thinks the economy is strong and rates will go higher. Meanwhile, David Tepper, bullish on the economy, but says stocks will do well here. Brian Reynolds of Reynolds Strategy, also still telling clients to buy the dips. Tim Seymour, where are we? Well, uh, Rosenberg, who does great, great work, uh, and his metaphor on the deflating bouncy castle, um, is is one that's very vivid if anyone has had kids and thrown a party. But I, I, I think, you know, first of all, David Rosenberg has never seen a bounce, a deflated bouncy castle he didn't like. And, and I think we have a case here where the reaction to the Fed this week is, I think, a case where the market is behaving opposite to where it, it needs to be. It's perverse to me that mega cap tech and, and higher multiple stocks that seemingly were under a lot of pressure in a world where rates were moving higher just a month ago have outperformed significantly and that the growth stocks that cyclically should be most exposed to the economy have, have taken it on the chin in the last couple of days. So my view is that the market is going to take a couple of days to figure this out. I'm not saying the market is wrong, um, but if you look at the triple Qs or the Nasdaq 100, it's outperformed the S&P by two and a half percent since the Fed meeting began. And, and I think that's contrary to what we thought was going to happen if the red was going to if the Fed was going to move into a higher gear just a month and a half ago. So, Tim, in other words, you're saying that they're hawkish, that the market's take on their hawkishness is, is right or wrong. I think the market is right. I think the Fed gained a lot of credibility this week. I think the market was concerned about inflation and the Fed seemingly uh, I'm not saying they're in front of the inflation curve, but the sense that the Fed is going to do something and let's not rehash all we did all week. Um, but I, I think the market is is rightly understanding that inflation is is in the eyes of the Fed and, and in greater consideration. Um, but how you trade that 
um, and, and putting your money into high multiple equity stocks here in this environment, which have outperformed since the Fed, I don't think is correct. Contessa, what's caught your eye about the trading action this week? There's There's been so many, I mean, you know, some of the stocks down, Citigroup down 15 percent, Copper down 15 percent. I mean, that's all pretty consistent with the plunge in bond yields. Well, I think it's interesting, too, where people have rushed in to buy on this dip. But, you know, when you're pointing out some skepticism here about whether the economy continues to grow without that overarching support from the Fed, and that seems to be the big thing that has people wondering, well, like, when do they start rolling back these asset purchases and things like that? It's sort of like wondering whether a spoiled child who's been supported by his parents over and over again through all of his failures can make it on his own two feet once they pull the support out. I think some skepticism probably is in order. Well, and it's so, Christina, this is the the thing where... It was interesting to hear James Bullard actually say, we are looking to financial markets for some guidance here. We've never been in an environment like this. And he's basically saying, listen, you participants, you tell us he he wants flexibility about the taper. He doesn't want a locked in one like they went through last time. You know, he's talking about his concerns. But as Contessa said, you have people in the market who say, you know, you can't babysit the markets, right? Should they be taking their cues from it or should they be saying, we don't care. This is what we think we need to be doing. And, you know, whatever's going to happen with stocks, they can throw all the tantrums they want. We're doing it anyway. Well, isn't that already the, the, the sentiment that we don't care, we do whatever we want? That seems to be the, the theme for 2021. But to contest this point, yes, there is a lot of hand-holding that's going on. However, if we go back to the inflationary argument, even just if we look at what the Treasury uh, has given out, 6.68 trillion, or I should say issued just within the past four months, the Fed bought 320 billion of that. So who else is buying all of it? I think sometimes it's just maybe too simple to blame everything on the Fed. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're behind the curve. I know Tim talked about that. I know a lot of guests we have definitely talk about that. And a lot of their policy is probably contributing to this market upset that we've seen, or I guess the volatility. But overall, you have other players coming in here. And then if we talk about the inflation argument, just we have a chart probably that we can show you on your screen that I asked for just in regards to the uh, the Fed meeting minutes. The word inflation just over the last little while, you can see the average has ge- decreased dramatically. Uh, the ECB has mentioned it even less. The bank of Japan didn't even mention it at all in their most recent meeting as well. So this is something that clearly there's a bunch of guys, economists, not all economists, that, you know, they do their dot plot. They talk about it. We debate it. They must be seeing something that maybe not everyone is seeing. And if you look at trimmed inflation, so mm-hmm. you take out the, the most extreme and the lowest it seems to be, you know, within a, a decent range. So I think these are some factors that we need to consider yeah. when we uh, blame everything on the Fed. No, and I Not think that I'm a proponent for them at all. That's I'm what just trying to take the flip side. Right. That's what markets I think are saying right now is, is and that's what sort of teasing off the top is is transitory right all along. And now we're flipping. You know, after pushing, pushing, pushing on them to respond to the inflationary environment, markets are going whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe we weren't ready for this. All right, let's move along. Talk about some airlines today, especially in light of the reopening. The street's number one airline analyst is bullish on Delta. Wolf Research Analyst Hunter K giving the shares a double upgrade to outperform, betting that pent-up business travel demand will surge later this summer like leisure has been doing already. He also cites the FOMO effect as a tailwind, saying business folks might be looking to use up their expiring vouchers or maintain their premier status for 2022 and beyond. He upgraded Alaska Air Contessa to outperform. I I love this because um, I've had a few trips for business <laughs> since we were allowed to travel again, and it is it is on my mind. 
I mean, I wonder if I can make it to the end of the year and still maintain my status because, boy, is it a pain to wait till you're in group two to board the airplane. I mean, it's so ridiculous. When you're looking at this, though, I think one of the things that he brings out is the skepticism about the dilution, you know, that there were other airlines who offered up more stock to raise some cash. And there was, seemed to be some skepticism on the part of investors who said, well, even if Delta is not doing it now, they may have to do it in the future. Boy, does this guy write a fun note or what? This was a fun note to read. And he says, now this is, and they didn't become stupid overnight. They're not going to do it. They're going to figure it out. And this is why he gets the uh, double upgrade here. Yeah. And there's Delta up 47% over the past year or so, Tim. So how much more upside do you think is realistic? Well, by the way, Contessa, you have status with us, so don't worry about that. And, and when you when you think about what's going on with airline stocks, I mean, they, they, they've, they've outperformed, uh, you know, essentially their 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 proportion to pre-COVID uh, EBITDA, EPS, even revenues um, in, in a way that, again, Hunter pointed out and Contessa brought this up. If you look at the enterprise value of a number of airlines, especially in American uh, where where they raised a lot of debt. So the valuation is very different than it used to be, and their earnings profile uh, nowhere near what it was. I think uh, Hunter's other main point, and I love this about airlines in this environment, is actually inflation helps airlines. They have more pricing power. They have the ability to actually push through higher fuel costs. And it also forces them to be uh, more cautious and more discriminant on, on capacity growth, which to me ultimately mm-hmm. is what the airline industry trades on. It trades on Prasm, passenger revenue per available seat miles. And when you see those numbers start to slip, it's usually the airlines are, are getting too aggressive and growing their routes and their capacity, and investors hate that. All right, Christine, I'll give you the last word on this. Well, I just had a question, actually, for Tim, then. Do you think the valuations are justified at the moment, especially because we're talking about 2022 and 2023 being stellar years? So the numbers that we're seeing right now, is this something that it's going to stay? You know, do you really want to hold Delta for a really long time if we're already pricing in the upside for the next two years? Airlines are great trading stocks. I've been a long-term investor in Delta, and I think the valuation there is one I like. I don't like them all. Well, fine. Take it that way, everybody else. Tim, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> Moving right along, you might want to get I your wanted ho- to be quick. Yeah, you might want to get your holiday shopping done early this year because there are reports of a potential toy shortage due to a lack of shipping containers. Thousands of toys are reportedly boxed and ready to be exported out of China, but rising costs and their serious COVID outbreak It has crippled shipping, as we've been talking about for weeks. According to the journal, the cost of a 40-foot shipping container heading from China to L.A. is up 63% this year. Contessa, I mean, this is the stuff of movies and books and so much fun that we could be having. But uh, the real issue is anyone who doesn't make Christmas isn't going to make their numbers, period. Two things. Basic Fund, which uh, manufactures not only Tonka trucks that have seen this big, uh, the New York Post had pictures of the boxes just filling this empty office space, but they make Light Bright and Care Bears and other toys. They say that their costs for a shipping container have doubled or even tripled. Do you think that that's not going to get passed along for the toys that actually do make it to the United States? That's number one. And then you're looking at the bottom line again for these uh, retailers. But back to the spoiled child, I mean, this also might be an opportunity for American parents to um, give their kids a little lesson in consumerism and the emptiness of it. I mean, who doesn't wince at the headline, uh, Tim, that, you know, if toys don't make it here, there won't be a Christmas, right? (laughs) God forbid. Yeah. Well, again, and and we are certainly not the land of misfit toys here, Kelly, but (laughs) I think you've got a case where. We, we, we definitely, if anything, if you're a Mattel, uh, the, the demand story is the more important part. And if you look at actually some of the, the toy stocks coming out of COVID, 
the pent up demand that was created in COVID is something that actually came in at a perfect time for companies like Mattel that are going through a major restructuring and a change in their business. They're the overhaul of Barbie and Ken, but also their digital their digital space. And, and that's what I think is actually most interesting about toy companies. I think this is all relatively transitory. And yes, the holiday season is critical. But more important is the structural you know, future of their business and those secular tailwinds that I think they have. Yeah. And, Christina, this goes back to your point on inflation, right? Because this will be a, a great case study in how much consumers are willing to pay up, whatever those margins are going to be. Because this is all about getting the product here at a moment in time. Well, if, if we're going to use airlines to, to bring it all together, people are willing to spend a ridiculous amount on flights as well as even, I can't remember the name of the resort that is charging like $3,000 a night. Yeah. And they're, they're seeing their, uh, their bookings just through the roof. So I think if we can, we can will it. We have savings. People are going to spend on these toys. They're going to spend more. And unfortunately, that's why you're seeing companies across the board increasing prices on everything because they know there's not going to be as much pushback on these price increases from consumers that we've seen in the past. Yeah, Tessa? But, but yeah, but again, the thing is, because it costs so much to ship them from China, what you're going to see is the, the uh, lower price toys and the manufacturers taking the big hit there. And who does that hurt in, in, in terms of consumers? It hurts those who can least afford to pay higher prices for toys. 100%. So the cheap toys that might be under the Christmas tree, th- those are the people who are going to take yes. it. Yeah, super. No, this is super difficult. Uh, again, it's when it has to be all about getting it at that <laughs> moment in time. All right. Finally, today, Morgan Stanley is resuming its coverage of Match Group with an over weight rating and a $180 price target. That's about 20% upside. They're saying pent-up demand for online dating post-pandemic should drive second-half growth, and their acquisition of social discovery app HyperConnect is another way to monetize its content. Tim, I'm going to you because this is a trading question, not for any other purpose. If this is all... <laughs> okay, all right. We've done. This. I feel like we've done this before, I Kelly, know, that's why so I'm telling you. you. It's, not, it's only because I have a trading <laughs> question for you. If all of this is true, and I, this is... They say, oh, we see all, you know, these... Eight reasons why this is a great stock to own. Okay, fine. It's up 2% year to date. Tell me why then all of that isn't already either priced in or that it's clearly, you know, moving (coughs) off of something else then. Well, I, I think, they, look, the, the multiples here aren't great. Uh, I think there was certainly some headwinds and, and the dynamics uh, in the online dating sphere while other parts of social media soared during COVID. So I think... <clears throat> Excuse me. You've got a case where, uh, look, HyperConnect gives them two really important, I think, social platforms in terms of discovery. I think the valuation isn't terrible. I think the chart is actually something that makes it a little bit more interesting. And when we're looking at these hyper growth tech names, this is not one. Um, and I think it's really in, in more in a commoditized business, dare I say. And I, I actually like the upgrade because I think that acquisition makes their portfolio far and away the most interesting with the highest growth of any of their peers. All right. Well, they're telling me we have to leave it there. So Contessa, give us a forward final answer for this whole thing. Well, he's talking about HyperConnect, which has more than 60 percent of its users younger than 30. That's a real base of consumer growth for Match. And it would be very interesting to see whether this video platform provides opportunities for something other than dating in the future, more social connections on other fronts. I want to know what the market rate is going for a glass of water for Tim Seymour. Yeah, (laughs) too. Thank you, everybody. Contessa Brewer, Tim Seymour, Christina Parsonevelis for Rapid Fire today. The 121st U.S. Open is underway out in California. Up next, we're going to talk to the CEO of the PGA Superstore about the pandemic boom in golf and how inflation and supply chain issues are impacting his business. But first, it's Friday, and that means it's time to look ahead to what's in store for your money next week. Here's your Friday Fast Forward.
Summer starts next week, and retail will be hot. Amazon kicks off its Prime Day on Monday, and GameStop's new CEO, Matt Furlong, takes the helm. That stock climbing 38% over the past month as meme traders continue to pour in. Plus, consumer sentiment for May is out on Friday. And with rates on the rise, we'll get a read on housing with new and existing home sales numbers. KB Homes, Nike, and FedEx are some of the big names reporting earnings. Fed Chair Powell will testify in person before the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Doximity, a social network platform for healthcare professionals, goes public, aiming for a $4 billion valuation. And with financials one of the best performing sectors this year, we'll get a check on the health of the banks with the results of the Fed stress tests out after the bell on Thursday. That's your Friday Fast Forward. Welcome back, everybody. The golf industry posting nearly $3 billion in sales last year, the third highest ever as the pandemic drove activity. And 2021 is already seeing more of the same. The PGA Tour Superstore reporting overall year-to-date sales 55% above pre-pandemic figures. So golfers are spending, but with inflation on the rise, supply chain issues around the world, and so much more, are higher prices around the corner. PGA Tour Superstore CEO Dick Sullivan joins me now to discuss. It's great to have you back. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. Good to be back with you. So uh, just to take one example, uh, my uh, my producer's husband has been trying to get some golf clubs he ordered for like six months. Uh, why so many issues with the supply chain? Well, the demand has been unprecedented. Um, you just mentioned it. You know, the, the industry's up 40 percent over the last couple of years. We're up 55, 60 percent. And there's no factories anywhere around the world that predicted this kind of growth. So uh, we're not immune to what we're seeing everywhere across all industries, but we're working with all our suppliers and you know, what may have been just a few days of lead time, unfortunately, it's turning into weeks, but I was in California this week working with suppliers to see how we can accelerate the lead times to make sure we satisfy this demand. Not that golf is typically the kind of thing you'd give for Christmas, although maybe it is. But do you think that's a reasonable time frame for when people should expect things to normalize? Or are we talking more into next year? Well, first, this is this is our Christmas. Uh, Father's <laughs> Day week is the biggest week of the year. And I heard you earlier. Uh, we have lots of toys, by the way. We have lots of inventory here. So there's, there's no issue with shortage of inventory or purchases for Father's Day. Um, but we are hearing that. We are hearing that factories are, are actually purchasing additional factories overseas to keep up with this incredible demand. I mean, even if you add another shift, it's not complicated math. If you have two shifts, you add another eight hours, you're only going to produce possibly 30, 35 percent more product. And so with the industry up 40, 50, 60 percent, you know, we are going to be challenged. But I think we're going to we're going to see that because people now are able to forecast, I think in a lot of cases, the assumptions were once people were vaccinated, once people you know, were, were able to go back inside, that less people would be outside. And we're not seeing that. We're continuing to see people want to be outside, want to be with their families you know, and enjoy this unbelievable game of golf. Sure. So I guess a, kind of a related question is whether you're having staffing issues at all inside of your own stores. I mean, have you guys had a consistent uh, labor base throughout this entire pandemic because you were so busy last year? Or are you also facing issues getting workers? It's a great question. Uh, clearly, we are challenged. Um, we're, we're seeing it everywhere. We're increasing our minimum wages. Uh, we're recruiting from colleges. We're recruiting everywhere we possibly can. Um, but of course, again, we didn't predict this kind of volume. But you know, we're working with organizations like the First Tee. You may be familiar with that. You know, our owner and chairman, Arthur Blank, the founder of Home Depot, uh, donated $10 million to the First Tee. And so we have hundreds of high school students that are coming into work you know, in our stores uh, that are part of the First Tee program. So we're doing everything we can to, to make sure that our customers are satisfied with right levels of service 
And you know, if we go back to our old Home Depot days, you know, whether it's wearing orange aprons or wearing blue shirts, customer service, you know, is the most important thing. So keeping in keeping in stock with people and keeping in stock with, with products is you know, the top priority for our customers. Abs yeah, no, I know what you're saying. When it's in your DNA, it's all the more important. Uh, it's a great reminder. They say it's the summer of the teen worker and, and your experience as well is bearing that out. Dick, happy Father's Day and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Appreciate Dick the time. Sullivan with the PGA Tour Superstore. And a quick programming note, you can catch live coverage of the ongoing U.S. Open on NBC, the Golf Channel and Peacock now through Sunday. Still ahead, inflation versus deflation, tapering versus holding steady. With all the debates swirling about the direction of both the Fed and the markets, where does Bitcoin fall? We'll explore that next. Welcome back with Bullard signaling a rate hike could be coming sooner than everybody thinks. Bitcoin is in the red along with the rest of the market and with gold and all the inflation hedges. So with the debate raging between inflation and deflation and tapering versus holding steady, where does Bitcoin land in all of this? Mackenzie Sigalos is here now to discuss. Mackenzie, what are the bulls saying about it this week? Hey, Kelly. So, you know, some investors see Bitcoin as more of a vote of no confidence on Fed policy. But historically, Bitcoin hasn't responded all that well to inflation news or inflation surprises. And this is why a lot of people on the street are dismissive of Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. And if you look at the numbers, I mean, I would be too. Generally, it's thought of as a longer term opt out, essentially a choice to not be exposed to Fed policy, period. Kelly? Okay, so, and I know what you're saying, and obviously people on the street go, okay, we look at the correlations, they're not that high, it's more highly correlated to stocks and so forth. But I still hear plenty of the public who's holding Bitcoin as a hedge basically against sort of the big collapse, right, that between the government and the Fed, and like they're going to get this wrong, the dollar's value is going to slide, again, that's the opposite of what's happening this week, and, and Bitcoin is what you want to be holding. So have any kind of planks of that argument been knocked away this week? No, you're absolutely right. And that's the long-term play. So what we're seeing right now are inflationary shocks, but we're not yet in a 1940s or 70s style situation where inflation is genuinely ruinous and we're actually dealing with monetary repression. And, and that is what would be the true bull case for Bitcoin when real interest rates go to negative five, negative 10, through a combination of high inflation and the government engaging yield curve control. And that's what the more macro-focused Bitcoiners are looking for that scenario. And obviously, we're not there yet. All right, Mackenzie, since you're here, we're also curious about how this is playing out across the country in terms of the interest in Bitcoin as an asset class and mining Bitcoin. I mean, there was big news this week about Texas trying to court a lot of these miners, which is ironic because they're traditionally where, you know, home to the energy industry. Now, of course, we're looking to energy maybe to power Bitcoin mining. The Miami as well, right? I mean, there's going to be there's a lot of competition even as we debate the price. Right. So I'm actually in Miami right now, and I, I spoke to the mayor yesterday. And what I wanted to get from him was a sense of why they're trying to, to court these Bitcoin miners. And, you know, half, more than half of the world's Bitcoin miners are in China, and they're essentially being kicked out, and they need to find a destination. So you have places like Florida and Texas trying to court these migrant miners. And, and Miami is known for its, you know, relatively cheap, uh, relatively uh, clean nuclear power. And so he he's trying to draw in those miners as part of a larger play uh, to be a crypto hub in the U.S. And as you said, like, you know, Texas is also uh, rolling out the red carpet for some of these miners looking for a home. 
Yeah, I know that people, states obviously always looking uh, kind of for the next big thing, but especially if you're Texas and you feel like it might be an existential threat, the way that people are moving away from oil and gas, you'd say, yeah, they probably might have a little bit more right. on the line in trying to cater this new industry. Mackenzie, thanks. Mackenzie Sigalos in Miami reporting on Bitcoin for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.